So we're going to begin our study in Thessalonians today, which means we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 1. I'm going to turn there in the Bibles. Really been looking forward to this because uh, we've been experiencing a time of great upheaval in our country. As Christians, we have found ourselves mixed up in the social, cultural, and political turmoil of our time. And the church, to be honest, seems to have lost its way as well as its testimony. While these letters weren't written to us, they contain principles that I think can apply to our lives and our situation. Because the church in Thessalonica was definitely going through some crazy times as well. And they were concerned about what was going on with their world, just as we are with ours. In these letters, Paul set out to encourage and challenge these believers to live godly lives in the face of all the confusion and chaos they were experiencing. And at the heart of it all was the fact that these former pagans who hailed Caesar as their king now rejected Caesar in favor of the risen Jesus. And that's all as a result of Paul's preaching to them. Uh, but this began to bring them into conflict with rulers and authorities uh, because their allegiance to their new king changed everything about how they understood the world and their place in it. About who they were and about what that meant for them in terms of meaning and purpose. In terms of how they lived in the world. See, the Roman authorities didn't really mind people worshipping whichever gods they wanted, so long as they obeyed the rules, paid their taxes, and recognized Caesar as their Lord and King. But these believers were declaring Jesus as their Lord and King, and that had consequences. It didn't mean they didn't follow the rules. The New Testament is full of encouragement to follow the laws of the place where you live, so long as they don't violate the law of love in Christ. And it also didn't mean they didn't pay taxes. After all, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But it did challenge the social and political structure of the day. Because in essence, their rejection of Caesar as Lord posed a threat to the Roman way of doing things. And this led to trouble. And it led to persecution. So much so that Paul and his crew had to leave Thessalonica. Uh, hence the written letters. Paul had come to the region because of a vision of a man from Macedonia calling out to him for help. His team had gone to Philippi first and then to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. We read about all this in Acts 17. And we're also told that several Jews were persuaded by the message, along with a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. That's when the trouble arose. In Acts 17, 5 through 9, we see this trouble unfold as a result of the jealousy aroused in the Jews who were not persuaded, the ones who remained as part of the synagogue. And in turn, they stirred up the city against Paul and his crew by uh, dragging the man who was hosting them out before the city leaders. And after paying them a bribe, 
he was released. But Paul and his crew, they had to sort of sneak off and, and leave. And unfortunately, this didn't make things any better. Uh, the remaining believers continued to face difficulties, and so Paul wrote them uh, these letters to offer them encouragement in the face of all of that. Now, I know that's a lot of background information, but it gives us a general understanding of what was going on when Paul wrote these letters, and that helps us understand why he wrote them and, and how they might apply to us in our situation. So here we go. Let's, uh, let's read uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, if you will follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so Paul began this letter by including not only his name, but also Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is Silas, same guy. Uh, it's, it's not that either of them were actually dictating the letter, but they were with Paul, and in a greater sense, they were in agreement with Paul. They were ministering with him the gospel in the places where they were. And they were <clears throat> on the team, I guess you could say. Uh, and Paul was showing the Thessalonians that, that these guys were trustworthy. They're with me. You can trust them. Uh, in short, <clears throat> he was presenting them as being equally worthy of preaching and teaching the gospel among the Thessalonians. If they showed up in town and, and dropped in on the meeting, you should listen to what they have to say. Um, and by the time Paul had written this letter, he had actually already sent Timothy to them in his stead. He couldn't make it at the time, so he sent Timothy. And we know this from various statements he made later in this letter. Uh, it's very likely that the concerns Paul was addressing in this letter were relayed to him by Timothy himself. That Timothy had come back and told him, here's what's going on, here's what they're facing. Uh, and that's another reason, I think, that Paul included him. Uh, but what this information means is that the Thessalonians were cautious about who they listened to. And that's a good thing. They wanted to be sure they were only getting the correct gospel teachings because there were already 
many other versions, as we know from our study in the letters of John. Uh, this is also true of a group called the Bereans, and based on the later part of Acts 17, they were considered more noble, actually, than the Jews of Thessalonica because they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. And it's important for us to pay attention to what is going on here because we live in a world full of numerous teachings and teachers espousing all kinds of doctrines and ideas. They're everywhere you look, TV, media, uh, you name it, you'll find it. Uh, and this makes it super important for us to know the scriptures, to study them. Uh, in order to know them, we have to read them. We have to spend time in them. And when a preacher pops up on the TV or some friend posts a video or, or quote on their you know, Facebook page or somewhere else, we can use discernment to figure out if what they're saying is worth listening to if we know what it is the scriptures actually say. Uh, moving forward then, Paul and his crew consistently gave thanks for the Thessalonian believers, prayed for them, and remembered their faith. And we've talked about this idea before of being connected to other believers in other places and of being thankful for them and praying for them. It's easy to allow our physical isolation out here uh, to sort of become an internal isolation as well. We tend to have no real problem being social and being polite and that sort of thing, but we find it difficult, at least I have, to build long-term trustworthy relationships with others. Now, prayer necessarily changes that. It's really hard to remain isolated from someone you are praying for and who you know is praying for you. There is a sort of shared spiritual bond that forms there, and it draws you into a deeper relationship. This is what Paul wanted for the Thessalonians, and in principle, it's still what we need in our time as well. Connections both in and beyond our own congregation. But Paul was also thankful and prayerful for the way the Thessalonians came to faith. And Paul mentioned several key concepts in these verses concerning the way that it happened. And so let's take a quick look at the three things Paul mentioned in verses 4 through 5. He said that they were loved and chosen by God. He said that the gospel showed up in word and power. And he said there, there was the full conviction of the Holy Spirit. So let's break these down uh, if we can. The first thing Paul said was that they were loved and chosen by God. And this, is, uh, this kind of terminology, it gets turned all sorts of ways most of the time. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read that Israel was loved and chosen by God. And they seem to think that meant they were the only ones loved and chosen by God. Uh, but God clearly wanted them to be a light for others so that all the world might know they are loved and chosen by him. That this is at the heart of the story of Jonah. When God sent him to tell Israel's enemy to repent, if the people of Nineveh weren't loved or chosen by God, why would they need to repent? They would have been toast either way, right? Well, that's what Jonah wanted, that's for sure. He seemed upset. But the Lord showed Jonah otherwise, that he 
cared for them just as he cared for Israel. Paul's use of this terminology here falls along the same lines because he was writing to a group, uh, a mixed group. It's a few Jews and a bunch of Gentiles, but it was a mixed group. And he was writing to them as the ones who had believed, the ones who had trusted in the Lord and given their lives to the gospel. As opposed to the Jews in the synagogue there who had not believed and had chased Paul out of town. This language of being chosen or elected is connected with Paul's statement in Ephesians 1 that those who place their trust in Jesus as Savior and King have been chosen in Him. In other words, Jesus was the chosen one and all who place their trust in Him will find themselves chosen in Him. And that makes sense because John 3.16 reveals that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The next major point is that Paul stated the Gospel showed up not only in word but also in power. In other words, Paul and his missionary team weren't preaching a message that lacked clear and indisputable evidence. It wasn't just a bunch of empty words like some of the other preachers and teachers. The good news Paul's group preached was backed up by proof. Paul didn't go into details about what kind of proof here, and nothing specific is mentioned in the book of Acts, where Luke recorded the story of how they came to faith. But we know from the rest of those stories that the Holy Spirit was at work in that time. It's reasonable to assume that the Thessalonian believers knew exactly what Paul meant, whether it meant uh, whether some sort of miracle or something else happened along those lines, something specific, or even if, if what he meant was that the message itself was transformation. And this is something we can't overlook, the transformational nature of the gospel message. When it is preached and taught faithfully and truthfully, there is a seed of power in it that cannot be missed. A seed of power that begins a transformation within us, unchaining us from our enslavement to sin and death. It's a seed of power that if we let it, will transform us into people who can face anything that comes our way and overcome anything the darkness throws our way. But that's not all. Paul's third point brings things full circle by including the full conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that word that Paul used there in the Greek, if I can say it right, is pleuphoria. Pleuphoria, I think. Anyway, it means conviction in terms of assurance or confidence. In other words, they, have, they could have complete confidence in what they were believing and giving their lives over to because the Holy Spirit was present and active in everything that was going on. The Holy Spirit was ensuring it. And, and this is what salvation looks like. We are loved and chosen by God. The gospel shows up in word and power in our lives. We respond to it as the Thessalonians did, and we are given the full assurance of the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us and producing things in us and through us. Paul gave thanks for this. 
And we should too. Because where would we be without God's love? Where would we be without the gospel? Where would we be without the Holy Spirit? And I'm not saying we would all be serial killers or whatever other terrible kind of people we could be, but we would not be the kind of people who are like Jesus. Which brings up the question, are we like Jesus? If we stop and look at the way we live, the kinds of choices that we make, and the way we interact with others, do our lives look like his? Can others tell the difference? Are we even bothering to look at ourselves critically and wrestle through the process of realizing our faults and confessing them and laying them down at the foot of the throne so that we can be like Jesus. As the hymn goes, we just sang, your life's a book before their eyes. They're reading it through and through. Does it point them to the skies, to Jesus? Do others see Jesus in you? This is a crucial, crucial question. And our answer can't be half-hearted. We can't be casual about it. Because as we talked about all this past fall and during Advent, we are meant to be light. Apparently the Thessalonian believers took this seriously because Paul wrote that while they received the word in much affliction, they still had the joy of the Holy Spirit and became examples to all the believers in that region. And this refers to the persecution they faced for claiming Jesus as Lord instead of Caesar, which was a major issue for them as the Jews in town didn't like that Paul had come in and pulled people away from them. So they stirred up trouble. Acts 17, 5-7 reveals that they formed a mob with some wicked men of rabble. That's the term they used. Uh, and then they tried unsuccessfully to get their hands on Paul and his team who had been staying with a man named Jason there in town. When that failed, when they couldn't get Paul and his crew, uh, they took Jason and they dragged him and some of the other believers before the local authorities, accusing them of breaking the law by claiming that Jesus was king instead of Caesar. That was their big accusation. And we have a hard time, I think, fully grasping the weight of this, because we live in a democratic republic where we get to vote and enjoy a wealth of freedoms and certain rights as American citizens. But these believers lived under a dominant imperial monarchy that would just as soon imprison or execute people it saw as a threat, which would include claiming that anyone other than Caesar is Lord. This wasn't about worshiping different gods. People all over the Roman Empire worshipped different gods. This was about who was actively in charge of the world right here and now. About who had a person's allegiance. In the Roman Empire, that could only be Caesar. And absolutely no one else. So when these Christians began claiming that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus had their allegiance, it threatened Caesar. Threatened his power and the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that was enforced at the end of a sword in his name. Just saying Jesus is Lord was an affront to the power and rule of Caesar. On our day and time, Christians 
in America often claim that they're being persecuted or that the government won't let them say Jesus is Lord or anything along those lines, but none of us are being beaten and thrown in prison for it. None of us are being sent into arenas and fed to lions. None of us are being executed. We really don't have much of a grasp on what these believers were going through. So then what does this all mean for us? How do we show that Jesus is Lord and that our president or our leaders or federal government or state or local folks are not? How do we show that Jesus is Lord and that all the various forms of media all around the world are not? If the Thessalonian believers risked everything to live in a way that was countercultural to their time, shouldn't our claim that Jesus is Lord look countercultural to ours? Shouldn't our way of thinking and speaking and living look different somehow from that of those around us? Shouldn't our values be different as they align with what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount instead of the consumerism of our day? Shouldn't we care about relationships instead of numbers or possessions or power? Moreover, shouldn't the way we live our lives right here in Marathon be an example to those here and beyond in neighboring towns? So that's what's happened with the Thessalonians. Based on verses 7 through 8, the Thessalonian believers became an example to all the believers in their region. And as a result, the gospel went out from them into every corner of the world. This wasn't a megachurch. It wasn't a missions organization with massive resources. It was a small church with a handful of people who were committed to faithfully living like Jesus, their Lord and Savior and King. Couldn't that be us? Couldn't we be so committed to faithfully living like Jesus that we became an example to others in our town and our area and that the gospel would go out from us into every corner of the world as a result? Is this even what we want? If so, what would it take from us? What kind of commitment? What kind of lives? And it's asking a lot, but based on what Paul wrote here, this small group of believers did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So couldn't we? In verses 9 through 10, Paul referenced their conversion from idolatry to serve the living and true God. And we've talked quite a bit about idolatry over the past year, and it's true that the human heart is an idol factory as Tim Keller has said. The Thessalonian believers grew up in a world dominated by idol worship. It was all they knew. Now, our world isn't really much different. Our idols may not look the same as theirs, but they are still just as pervasive, which means we need to be aware of them and consistently be turning away from them, whatever they may be, Based on what Paul said here, the way to turn away from idols is to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. 
And some folks get so wrapped up in waiting for Jesus to return that they lose their focus. They get so caught up in speculation about when Jesus return, will return and what will happen when he does that they forget to serve him right here and now. And then on the flip side of that, there are those who almost ignore the reality of Jesus returning. As if maybe it won't happen at all. We can't be on either side of this pendulum swing. We need to live right in the tension of the already, but not yet. The idea that Jesus has already inaugurated the kingdom, but that he has not yet consummated it. That means we live and serve now with an awareness of what is coming. In fact, what is coming <clears throat> informs how we interact with people now. Paul wrote that the Thessalonians were serving God and waiting for his son Jesus to deliver them from the wrath to come. I've seen a number of folks jump on that last bit and talk about how it's all about non-believers going to hell and suffering eternal torment and all that. And apart from Jesus, there is certainly eternal death. Make no mistake. But based on the context, this is not in reference to that. In context, Paul is referencing the kind of conflict that came from being a believer in the Roman Empire during the first century. We know this because what he said both before and after this statement had to do with facing persecution for their faith. He had already talked about how the Thessalonians received the word with much affliction, as we saw a few moments ago. And as we will see next week when we dig into chapter 2, Paul referenced the persecution that he and his team faced at Philippi. In other words, the wrath to come in this specific instance is the wrath of Rome. The wrath of Caesar and those who represent his power and authority. And even the wrath of other groups who believe differently and stir up trouble for believers. Paul trusted that Jesus would deliver these believers one way or another. He had faced persecution himself and been delivered. He had been jailed and beaten, among other things. And he also knew of numerous others who had similar experiences on top of this, he knew that some had been killed. Some experienced deliverance in a way we might not typically consider. Not that being executed was a good thing. It absolutely wasn't. But those who faced execution ultimately experienced deliverance from the power of darkness and evil in this world. And in the end, in the resurrection, they will have gained more than they lost. Which is exactly what we find in Matthew 10, 38 through 39, when Jesus said that whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The deliverance Jesus offered was always greater and whatever persecution the world could cook up. And it was made possible through his death and resurrection. So Paul called all this to mind here. In between talking about the persecution that Thessalonians experienced and were experiencing and what he himself went through, 
they could trust in Jesus for deliverance one way or another. So in the weeks ahead, as we dig further into Paul's letter, uh, two letters to the Thessalonians, and we consider how they may still speak to us today in the middle of all our own social and cultural and political turmoil, all the conflicts that we face. Let's trust in Jesus with every thought and word and act. In a time when the church has lost its way and Christians have sort of lost their place in the social order of our country, and we, we can't even seem to agree amongst ourselves about the teachings of the Bible so as to have a Christ-like testimony. May we remember how the gospel first showed up in our lives, full of power and the confidence that we had in the Holy Spirit. May we continue to turn away from idols, any that we might still cling to. May we be willing to faithfully live countercultural lives in the service of our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. May we face whatever backlash that causes with the assurance that Jesus will never leave us, will never forsake us, and will deliver us one way or another. Will you pray with me?